I'm here today with Annie Ogden. Annie, thank you so much for coming in to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of Path to Follow. Nice. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for making the trip. And uh, this is episode 99, so we're almost to 100, awesome. which is exciting. Wow. How long have you been doing the podcast for? We've been doing the podcast for two years, maybe two and a half years, probably. We started in COVID and it just, you know, we try to do one or two every week. Sometimes it gets busy this summer. We usually take some time off, but winter break's a good time because there's not much going going on here. So Yeah, and you've got your Santa hat. You're ready to go for the holidays. Yeah, this is a holiday-themed episode, awesome. and I want to give you a little gift for the episode. We usually do oh, a book nice. recommendation, so I'm sure you probably have some book recommendations to give our listeners, but I've got a couple things for you here. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, the Path to Follow t-shirt. I love it. The merch. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Oh, and here's a book. Thank you. So this book, These Truths, it's by Jill Lepore. And Jill Lepore is a famous historian. She's a professor at Harvard, and she wrote this, I guess, rewriting of American history from the very beginning to present day through... You know, all of the eras through American history, which I think you would love as a history teacher. Yes. Oh, I'm excited to read this. And break is the perfect time. Thank you so much. And maybe I'll get some good excerpts to read my students when we get back from break. Mm -hmm. So as a history teacher, what do you think you like most about teaching history? And where did you, I guess, begin your journey in history? Yeah, so good question. I um, So I teach 10th grade U.S. history and I majored in history in college, but before college, I wasn't really sure um, like what I was gonna major in. So in high school, I really, really got into history um, as like a class. I wasn't like, you know, history buff obsessed with all that stuff in my spare time um, that I would say I'm a little more so now, but I had these really, really awesome history teachers um, for every year I had in high school. And what were they like? So um, I went to one school for ninth grade. I went to like an elementary middle school and ninth grade was uniquely the last year. So um, that history teacher I had, his name was Mr. Jepson. He was like an icon at the school. And he had the hardest global history class ever. Kids were terrified of him. It was a big Harkness table that everyone would just sit around and he would just go around asking you questions. Mm. But one thing he would do is ask you, like, what you think about certain ideas in history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, like, basically still a middle schooler, I was so not used to that, a teacher just asking me what I thought about something. So that was pretty cool. And then I went on to a different school for 10, 11, 12th grade. And all my history teachers there were women, interestingly, because for some reason I feel like um, history teachers are often thought of as men. Maybe it's, like, more common for some reason. I don't know. But I had these three awesome history teachers every year. Um, and at first I got really into the idea of like memorizing historical facts. I kind of had a, a, or I have a memorization oriented brain. So I would get really excited for history tests because I would just like, you know, rip through the questions. I loved being able to know what was going on in the world or what had gone on. And, um, I loved my, I took AP U.S. history, love that teacher. Um, and then my senior year in high school, I took this AP comparative government course that was like. Uh, political science and history combined and that teacher was just awesome like she was so smart and I wanted to be just like her and then when I got to college I started taking a couple history classes and 
history became less memorization based and more about arguments and connections between different time periods, different ideas. And I realized that U.S. history in particular, a lot of the things that we see with our, you know, kind of crazy political climate today or even in the last 50 years are repeated ideas or arguments or interests that say the founding fathers once had Mm -hmm. so i love all kinds of history in general but i'm definitely a american history buff Hmm. so it started out as your love for memorization and it seems like you did really really well at the beginning of you know middle school because you were able to memorize all these facts about history um but what particular units or studies within these classes that you had gripped your interest so much? Yeah, so um, I would say I got really into the post, when I took U.S. history my junior year of high school, I got really into the post-revolutionary war, um, pre-civil war, even like kind of pre-antebellum area, the idea of like the constitutional convention and figuring out how to um, constitute a nation is what like one book that we use in the class I teach now says. And I thought that was really interesting because it was all these different people. And now you have the musical Hamilton that totally brings that whole period to life. But so a I lot still of, haven't seen Hamilton. Oh, my gosh. You have to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, even just seeing the, the recording of the musical is like you can stream it on Disney Plus or something. But it's so cool and it's so worth it. And I use the lyrics from those songs as like a text in my class. Mm-hmm. But I love that time period, just understanding, you know, you have the Anti-Federalists and Thomas Jefferson, and you have the Federalists with Hamilton. And they were both super, super smart individuals, super influential individuals, but they would go at it because they were so convinced that their ideas, so Jefferson was really in favor of the farmers, he was really into um, the idea of, like, not having a big oppressive federal government because he was afraid it would mimic what the King of England once was. And so he was really into kind of a decentralized government. And then you have Hamilton, who's really into, like, the idea that we will be a stronger country if we have a stronger, like, central economy, central government. And both of them, like, again, super smart individuals coming from real, genuine desires. And eventually we sort of ended up with an in-between. But um, I think especially the musical is actually a really fun way to bring that to life because you see these men. They have, like, a rap battle in the musical where Mm -hmm. Hamilton and Jefferson's characters just go at it. What was Hamilton... What was he like? I know he was born in a different country, right? Yes, he was born in this like tiny island in the Caribbean. And then he came to, um, I was going to say came to the United States, but I guess came to the colonies um, when he was like a teenager. And I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but he was like a teenager and he came kind of as an orphan. He was seeking an accelerated course of study mm-hmm. and he went to Princeton. He basically was really smart, had all these ideas but just rub people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, like, you know, there's a lot of different ideas in the musical of how, like, Jefferson was his enemy and Washington was his kind of mentor. Hmm. So there's, like, a couple funny lines in the songs where, you know, Washington's calling for Hamilton and Jefferson's like, oh, you know, hurry up, daddy's calling and all this stuff. They're so funny. I wonder if, there. if Jefferson was ever in a duel because I know – I mean, I'm surprised Jefferson and Hamilton didn't duel each other because I know Hamilton, did he kill Aaron Burr or Aaron Burr killed him? Aaron Burr killed him. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but they do kind of tell you that at the beginning of the musical. Yeah, they get into a duel and that's how Hamilton dies, this kind of untimely death. He sort of, I would say, a lot of historians say that he died before he really got to realize his full potential. Um, do you know how old he was? 
Oh, I should know. I want to say he was pretty young. I I actually one time recently said something that was like I think he was in his early twenties, and my student Googled it and was like, "You're wrong." So mm-hmm. I think it maybe he was in his late thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, isn't it crazy? That's how people decided things in the sixteen, seventeen hundreds. Was if you disagree with me, I just say let's duel, and we. Yeah. Go stand, I don't know how many yards from each other and turn and shoot. Yeah. And it's funny that you say, like, I'm surprised Jefferson never got into that kind of duel with him. But I think Jefferson's character was just, like, not really about that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Burr was a bit more angry and impulsive and he had kind of slighted Burr in the past, he meaning Hamilton. So Jefferson seems more diplomatic to me. He He's not a true fighter. He wants to intellectually. Yeah. And he was so obsessed with creating things, you know, like creating our government, creating this like beautiful, I mean, I shouldn't say totally creating the estate because he had a lot of help with that Monticello, mm-hmm. but um, like creating the University of Virginia. He was an ideator, which Hamilton was too, but Hamilton was um, could be a little bit more hot-headed. Mm-hmm. And Aaron Burr, yeah, was just kind of all over the place with that stuff. I think he was a little jealous of them all. I don't know too much about Aaron Burr. He's someone I could look into a little bit more, but um yeah. But who uh, in this time period really interests you, I guess, historical figures, even generally? Like, which historical figures do you really like to do deep dives on? Well, I do love Jefferson. I think Jefferson's so fascinating for so many respects, even if you're talking about slavery and antebellum period. Like, Jefferson's a really interesting person to look at. Um but I don't know. I As you get to the 20th century, there's so many really cool people. Um, I think we are used to, I actually just finished a project with my students on rebels who change systems. We Our themes in our 10th grade are systems and power, and they talk about that in all their classes. And so we talk about it in history, and students pick someone in American history who's been a rebel that's challenged a source of power. Um, and I try to steer them away from doing the Martin Luther Kings mm-hmm. or, you know, the, like, John F. Kennedys, because... There are so many really interesting historical figures that don't get all of that, you know, like press time. Right. Um, and I think that's actually something you might like about this book. I haven't read this book, but I was watching some interviews with Jill Lepore and her whole goal when writing this book was to include the figures that we all recognize as monumental in American history, Jefferson and Martin Luther King and Lincoln and JFK Mm -hmm. and all these figures. But she also wanted to scatter in all of the other people that were a part of American history in a big way that we may not realize or recognize when we just look back in a broad stroke of history. Totally, totally. Like um, one person I love telling my students to dive into, I just had a, a student research her for her project is Betty Ford. She is so, so cool, Gerald Ford's wife. Um, She was the first lady of the United States kind of um, by, like, accident or chance because her husband, Gerald Ford, took over when Nixon resigned. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ford had only been the vice president for a short amount of time because Nixon's vice president had resigned with Watergate and all that. So um, she was totally just, like, trailblazing through. Um, What did she do? What did she do? What were her big things? So – she was really um, like a strong advocate for Roe v. Wade and women's reproductive health. She uh, had breast cancer, and she started this whole movement to encourage women to um, get screened, get mammograms for breast cancer. 
and she also spoke out um, about like mental health and she dealt with a lot of substance issues and Hmm. she was kind of the first first lady to ever a have her own opinions not just be there supporting her husband's opinions like a lot of her stances that she took were actually like opposite of her husband's party her husband um Hmm. was a republican president and um she also you know kind of showed the sense of vulnerability that a lot of people um certainly women certainly political figures hadn't shown yeah it's interesting because i was thinking eleanor roosevelt maybe was somebody that spoke out um to the public when her husband was in office but she probably had views that were in line with his political yeah so it's interesting i know you do a lot of book recs on this podcast but if i can give a tv show rec um it would be this show called first lady that just came out like a year ago and it's a bi biopic tv show where you have um it centers around three characters eleanor roosevelt um, Michelle Obama and Betty Ford and it compares and contrasts their lives and that's where I learned like originally some of these nuances about Betty Ford that I hadn't known but it also shows Eleanor Roosevelt and um, a lot of what's interesting with Eleanor Roosevelt is that her husband kind of like you were saying her husband would be like I really need support on this publicly can you go and talk about it in public and then mm-hmm. I'll get more people to support it because people were like really behind her Whereas Betty Ford would kind of just speak out on what she wanted and her Mm -hmm. husband sometimes was like, well, wait a sec. Yeah. And I think another interesting first lady who did a lot of that was Woodrow Wilson's wife. I think Edith Wilson. To be honest, I really don't know much about her. Um, But I know that Woodrow Wilson was, you know, fraught with a lot of complexity. So I'd be curious to know more about his wife. Yeah. Well, he had a stroke, I think, in the last maybe two years or one year of his Mm -hmm. time in office. And I think she took over and did a lot of the presidential duties while he, he really couldn't move at all. Yeah. So she did a lot. Huh. Interesting. But I should look more into her. So does your class, does it move in units? How does your class really operate? So that's a great question. Um, so I teach at um, a co-ed prep school in Connecticut. But um, the high school that I teach at, the high school's on a separate campus from the preschool through eight. Um, it's just like five minutes down the road. But the school is from the 19, started in the 1920s. And the high school actually just started Uh, four or five years ago Mm -hmm. um i think this is year four of having the high school and so the model of the school is that it's kind of a 21st century learning experience um that is definitely less focused on dates and memorization and like i really don't even um give like fact-based tests and if i do i kind of tell the students the questions ahead of time because it's just stuff i want them to memorize um but we do a lot of project-based learning we do a lot of interdisciplinary work so the class I teach is technically American Studies, history side of it, and the 10th graders also take an English class called American Studies, um, like English side of it for 10th grade, and we do a lot of work together. So I work with English teachers a lot, which I love. Um, I think it gives students a more holistic picture of these ideas. But units-wise, I, as I was saying, we kind of have this 10th grade, we do have this 10th grade theme of systems and power. So our units move pretty chronologically But I've even had to kind of let go of the idea that, like, you know, I can't study in depth every single presidential election with my students. Mm -hmm. It's just we wouldn't get through it all. It's not, you know, always going to serve them as well as if we just studied kind of in general the idea of, like, progress and resistance. So, for example, we just finished a unit on the antebellum period right before the Civil War. And the theme was kind of um, this idea of like progress. So the United States was experiencing a ton of progress during this time with 
westward expansion with the growth of the economy you had early forms of industrialization but for every bit of progress you had you also had resistance um, and rebellion so for example like the invention of the cotton gin leads to an increase in slavery westward expansion leads to native removal you have all these different kind of issues floating around and so instead of looking at it from a fact-based point of view with students we look at it from an ideas point of view so you know I'll ask them like can you identify one way in American society today that there's a lot of progress happening in one field but maybe a lot of like controversy or resistance that comes with that mm-hmm. so an example might be technology this rapid growth in technology and reliance on technology that we have in the year 2022 or I guess almost 2023 and conversely you know the amount of pushback that that gets or the idea that you know someone can click a button on Twitter and suddenly their ideas mm-hmm. are everywhere right um, so is that part, is the current events study, the independent part, is that done outside of the classroom? And what do you typically do on a given class day? So we have a, a lot of like discussion-based class um, or like student-centered learning. So it's kind of based around inquiry. So, you know, sometimes when I just want students to be able to understand what was going on in a time period, those ideas that, um, you know, might be might be something you'd get quizzed on in a regular multiple choice quiz in an average like U.S. history class. Instead, I'll say to them, like, here are three terms on the board. So when we were getting to the final years right before the Civil War, we talked about Uncle Tom's Cabin, the book that Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote, and how that was one kind of catalyst for the Civil War. Lincoln called her the little great little lady that made this great mm-hmm. war. Yeah. Um, and so we use that as an example, and we dove into that. And then I gave them three more examples. These other three things were kind of final straws for different people in the country that eventually led to the Civil War. And those three things are... Um, the Dread, the, or I guess Kansas-Nebraska Act and Bleeding Kansas, 1854, the Dred Scott decision, which was 1858-59, and then the raid on Harper's Ferry in mm-hmm. 1859. And I put those three terms on the board. They split into three groups. They each grab like a whiteboard. We kind of have whiteboards around the room. And they're in charge of researching it and figuring out what it was. So they'll write some bullets on the board, figuring out what it was. And then we all come together and discuss like, why would these things, especially in the order in which they happened eventually lead us to a war Hmm. and then i give a like little five minute discussion on how we get to lincoln's election and south carolina's secession right after that from the union and then we've got a war that's interesting so you technology is super useful in your classroom you kind of just send them off to do their own research on one of these three absolutely and we'll have discussion-based classes too they'll have you know we have like kind of a textbook by this awesome historian eric foner and um, has a bunch of primary source documents in it, and like they'll they'll be assigned to read certain things for class, and then come in and we'll discuss them as a whole. Sometimes we'll be working on a project in class where they'll spend class period just working in their groups or individually on their project or their essay. But um, the idea is that it's a lot more of their you know hands-on experience, their voices, and it's about me kind of guiding them, helping them get there, rather than you know them sitting down with. A, a pen and paper and listening to me talk for 50 minutes which mm-hmm. there's there's nothing wrong with that I learned that way but um you know I can also identify a lot of different ways that I would have learned maybe more usefully when I was in high school or a lot of days where I felt like I was going to fall asleep because I'd heard my teacher's voice so much yeah that's true um back to the Harriet Beecher Stowe because I read Uncle Tom's Cabin in college mm-hmm. why was that such a big disruptor or big deal at the time so um Slavery was kind of an issue as it had grown and grown in the South. It was also an issue that was sort of not to be talked about. 
even in places in the north where um, slavery was completely abolished. The idea was that a lot of people, you had abolitionists, you had a group of people throughout the country, especially in the north, that really wanted slavery to be wholly abolished. But you also had a lot of people that like didn't really know how to handle it. And a lot of people, you know, the, the like blood isn't on my hands, so to speak, and I don't really know how to deal with that. But to- Uncle Tom's Cabin was like a fictional novel about an enslaved family, you know, it showed the mother, it showed the children, the father, and it got slavery to be more of a dinner table conversation, Mm -hmm. which was huge. Um, So suddenly, you know, we think about like what's going to happen when we all go home for Thanksgiving and see our extended family and who's going to have these political ideas and Mm -hmm. are we going to talk about it or not? Like all that stuff we have today, that was still the same thing back then, but it was like everyone comes home for Thanksgiving, say, and talks about Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was kind of this suddenly like less avoidable topic and also one that people were more interested in. It allowed them to humanize slavery a bit more. Right. And it it, it humanizes the enslaved people so that they have a face, they have a absolutely personhood that maybe beforehand the people in the north or people who weren't in the south would say it's just part of the economy. And yeah. they wouldn't recognize, and especially in the south, but they wouldn't recognize the human of the hum- the human humanity of the people. Right. I think a lot of people didn't want to recognize it. And then when face-to-face with this book that was hugely popular, um, it was almost like a, a Harry Potter of the time, like Harry Potter was in the early 2000s or late 90s when everyone like was talking about it and everyone was obsessed with it. Obviously, this was more of much more like real and serious issue, but the book portrayed it in a way that made it more digestible for people and made it... Um, it was more strategic, so they weren't just people weren't as inclined to just turn a blind eye to it again. So the years leading up to the Civil War, um, uh, what? So John Brown's role was pretty significant in, I guess, pushing the needle closer to war. What was he all about, and why was he such a key figure at this time? Well, so he was a white abolitionist. He had never been enslaved, obviously, as a white person. He had never owned slaves. He was pretty much from the North. Um, And then he, as he got older, became, you know, a pretty staunch abolitionist. So he was really in favor of ending slavery totally. And he came to this conclusion that violence would basically be the only way to make that happen. So he eventually got a bunch of folks together, a couple of whom were his sons, couple of whom were like freed black people, some enslaved people who he encouraged to escape and join him. And they all launched this raid on a big arsenal, um, Harper's Ferry, which now, it was Virginia at the time, now it's kind of like the border between Virginia, West Virginia, and Maryland. And um, it was this really kind of I don't know if it wasn't that organized. It was a failure in the sense that he was captured and he was actually eventually executed for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it made people realize that, A, both sides felt like they needed to build up a military. Um, So the South felt like they needed to kind of build up a military presence because this issue was going to increasingly maybe be more violent. It also made it clear that people whose lives were not personally affected by slavery still had a really strong anti-slavery stance or could. And I think that was maybe partially due to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, A lot of people kind of felt that way because of that. And um, when John Brown, right before he was executed, he said this famous quote that was like these, I'm quite certain now more than ever that the crimes of this guilty land will not be purged away but with blood. 
Meaning, like, he basically was saying, like, I don't regret it at all. And if we're really going to end slavery in this country, we've got to fight for it and it's going to be deadly. Mm -hmm. And soon enough, you've got Lincoln running for office. You've got states saying they're going to secede if Lincoln gets elected. Lincoln gets elected in 1860. South Carolina leaves the Union right after and a bunch of states fall. Mm. That's interesting. He he came to that conclusion. He knew there had to be a lot of bloodshed. He knew. Yep. Hmm. Pretty cool. So when you say that you work in tandem with the English department and the other English teachers, what does that look like? And why why is that functional at your school? Um, I would say it's functional because the topics are pretty similar. So like I'm teaching about the antebellum period while they're reading Frederick Douglass in English class. Um, and what we kind of do is we'll set up interdisciplinary projects sometimes where the project that students are doing is both for their English and history class. Um, and sometimes we'll just do like a day of class where we explain things together. So um, we will look at, we did like a stations group recently where we were tracing the effects of slavery throughout today and students read different articles um, in different stations. So one is economics and culture, one is, um, or I guess one was economics, one was culture, one was sports and entertainment, one was policing and laws, and students kind of move through those, and eventually they write, you know, they those articles talk about race today and race during slavery in the United States, and then students are tasked with writing kind of an English-based essay on it, on, you know, whether or not they agree with these articles. The articles come from all different points of view, um, but that was kind of something that we did, the, an English teacher and myself, really nicely right before break when students were kind of getting antsy, and we just would combine them together for like an hour and a half and just mm -hmm. give them a bunch of different ideas floating between the two classrooms, getting the jitters out a little bit, but also allowing students to definitely make connections between their classes. Yeah, I like that. I like the coordination between the teachers too because here we have U.S. history for juniors and we also have American literature. and. Yeah. That's going on at the same time, but I don't talk very much with the history teachers. So I'm teaching a book when we get back from break called Underground Railroad. Right. And it would probably be fitting if the U.S. history courses were studying slavery at the same time as I was reading this. So mm -hmm. the two could work in tandem with each other. Um, but I like that. I think that's helpful for both classes and it creates more maybe a whole holistic learning experience. Yeah, and sometimes I think it's just as simple as walking up to the English teacher in the hallway and say, hey, what are you working on with the students? Or asking the students at the start of class, what did you just do in English class today? And sometimes even if you don't plan to have your classes perfectly aligned, there are connections inevitably in there that you can allow them to make between classes. And I think it allows them also to feel more confident in what they're learning. Because some kid might be a big English kid but hates history or vice versa. And they realize or they feel like they're really bad at one, but they want to be good at it or something or they're good at the other. Once they can kind of see those connections on their own and they eventually start to naturally make them on their own, I think it's it's eventually going to prepare them for college better and the world just realizing that nothing totally happens in a vacuum or nothing exists in a vacuum. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about American studies as, I guess, one class, but I like how it's two classes but they're jointly connected yeah. and there's a lot of conversation between the two departments totally hmm um all right so so now maybe we can talk about students and some of the things that you see as a high school teacher mm -hmm. that i would relate to maybe too but you have your own vantage point you work in a different area and i don't know students today 10th 10th graders, um, maybe the upper school at your school, what is it like? What are some of the things that you notice 
from a student perspective that that's maybe different from when you were in high school? Yeah, so um, I guess teaching 10th graders right now, I learned recently that they were in, so it was three years ago, they were in seventh grade when um, COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I feel like I should preface with that because I don't really know what I see that's a academically or socially that might be a result of COVID and being in lockdown for so long during these like fundamental years or whether it's just the nature of the world today. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure you would agree with me that the technology is kind of frightening. Um, We have a rule in our school that students are not to be on their phones um, unless they're in, like we have a couple kind of enclaves in the hallway that are designated cell phone areas where they're allowed to go text their mom to pick them up or or like, you know, to bring their field hockey stick or something. um, But we don't allow phones in classrooms you're not supposed to be on it when you're just walking around in the hallway that becomes a really difficult rule to enforce because a lot of students tend to you know there's always some sort of reason why but they're supposed to be confiscated if you don't have that but i really like the reliance on technology is is definitely i mean it was totally there when i was in high school but just to a greater extent now on the TikTok and all that mm-hmm. um so i definitely say that but i would say also I wonder, I try to be really empathetic with students. I don't think it's fair to them to just, you know, say, well, you guys today are so much worse at this, or you're always doing this more, or like, you know, your generation, blah, blah, blah. But I do sometimes wonder about, I would love to like take a step back and look at myself as a high schooler and realize like, what did my teachers see in terms of habits and stuff? But I definitely worry about like, the ability to persevere a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I put as one of the class goals on my syllabus at the beginning of the year, like cultivating a culture of grit and understanding that like things are hard, but we're going to try to push through them anyway. Hopefully we're going to try to push through them because we care about them. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the difference in my mind between grit and perseverance. Grit is you continue doing something because you care about it. So I say, all right, like then it's on me to kind of make you guys all care, make you interested in it. But recognizing the idea that, you know, like there's not the magic formula to get an A. And, you know, maybe you're used to that in the past, maybe you're not, but sometimes like you're going to face a setback. You're going to get a B on something. You're not going to totally have X, Y, and Z figured out. But that's also life. I think that's a huge life skill. And so Mm -hmm. I try to kind of encourage my students to think about that as much as possible. But Sometimes, like, you know, there's a homework assignment that they don't want to do. They just don't really do it (laughs) because, you know, I think maybe part of it is because they were in lockdown for so long and they don't want to just sit at their desk at home and do things because they did that for so long. And Or maybe, you know, they just, like, haven't yet learned how to sit down and do something that's hard. But that's definitely one way that I find myself getting frustrated with the students, definitely sometimes unjustly, and they kind of have to bring me back to earth with that. Well, yeah, because I have the same thing going on with me sometimes is I was the type of student, especially in high school, that it wasn't never even a question whether I was going to do my homework. You know, it's like I would just do the homework Mm -hmm. and I don't really understand. It just doesn't synapse with me like when a student comes in and just didn't do it. Like there would be days when, yeah, I'd forget to do something or but that'd be a big mess up. You know, yeah. and some yeah. people, I mean, not all students are the same. Some people just don't want to do their homework. Yeah. And the kid that maybe hasn't done their homework three days in a row in history, I, you know, think that they're just slacking off. But I find out like 
MySchool in particular, maybe they've been spending 24-7 on this robotics project that they're super interested in and they just prioritize that over history because that's what matters more to them and understanding that that's not something I should punish them for but that that is something that's kind of a lesson of some work is fun, some work is not fun, but it needs to get done. But my hope is that the more that you engage with the material in each of your classes, the more you'll be interested in it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's wishful thinking. So why is grit such a big... I guess, philosophy for you? Why is that so important to you? Um, well, so I wasn't like that privy to that word or that idea when I was growing up, but the high school I went to has the motto of grit and grace. And I actually still wear my high school ring, which my students make fun of me for, but I love it because it has like the Latin phrase for tuta numine, which means grit and grace. And I just love that idea. It's kind of a, a motto that I try to live my life by of the idea that, you know, you're going to push through. Things are going to be tough and you're going to kind of be gritty. It's not always going to be pretty, but you're going to push through. And then grace, in my mind, is kind of the idea of having grace with yourself is super important. I try to remind my really perfectionist students about that because I was totally that way where I struggled to have grace with myself because I used to just be so focused on, you know, getting the A, getting all the memorization down, whatever. But um, also the idea that, you know, you've been given an opportunity and I try to stress that to my students you've been given an opportunity to go to a really awesome school like Gilman too and um you know what you do with that says a lot about um you know you as a person how do you take advantage of the opportunities that have been given you the idea that you know I always talk with my dad about to whom much is given much is expected and I was very fortunate growing up to be able to go to like awesome schools in my life and that was not something that maybe I always earned it was just something that like oftentimes was just given to me and so then you've got to kind of figure out how to make that count Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes it's hard because you are just kind of born going to a certain place and it's all you know I go to this school and I don't know anything else but Mm -hmm. one thing that I like to say to my students sometimes especially the seniors who are just looking to get out of school and they're ready for college which is great and I would be in the same I'd be the same way and I probably was but you know, especially athletes too. It's like you go to college and you play division three, division one, wherever, and you don't know what's going to happen in the next four years. And the games that we have out here, the classes that we have, they're some of the best classroom environments and sporting events that you'll ever experience. So you've got to enjoy it. Like enjoy the Friday night game because, you know, next year you'll be a freshman at you know, Cornell and, you know. Yeah, and one thing we talk about at my school is like, you know, what it means to have your teacher high-five you in the hallways on a Monday and saying, hey, great game on Friday. I was there. I saw that awesome touchdown you made. Like, that was great. I think that means so much, and that's something that seems to be unique to the prep school experience or the smaller high school experience, and that's something I really encourage students to take advantage of too, just like, you'll you know, you'll never be in a place where more adults care about you. That was another thing that used to be said, said at my high school, and I think you would totally – agree that that exists at Gilman and I would definitely agree to teach it it's, exists at the school that I teach at. Yeah and I think I think for the most part there's a lot of grace on behalf of the teachers at these schools too because in my high school I don't know how many of my teachers because my school was so big I had 517 kids in the grade and probably 27 people in the classroom mm-hmm. it's very hard for one teacher to 
give you the benefit of the doubt that that robotics project that you've been right, working on right. that I'm aware of probably ate up all your time and maybe I'll give you a little bit more time on the history paper. It was just like, you didn't do the history paper. You didn't yeah. do it. Yeah. And I think also creating that balance for students is important. You know, I want to have grace with you in that regard because I know that you really care about this and you've been working on this. But in the real world, you're not always going to get a boss, for example, I feel like it's so cliche to compare everything in a school to like a work environment, but it's true. Like you're not always going to get a boss that knows that you were up late doing X, Y, and Z important thing last night. You had an away basketball game yeah. and it took a while to get home yeah. and you lost. Yeah. Maybe I don't expect that homework from you the next day. Right. So that's definitely a push and pull of holding students accountable, but, you know, humanizing them a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, back to the conversation about students, um, Gilman is an all-boys school and you work at a co-ed school. Yes. I'd like to just know from your vantage point a little bit more about teenage girls specifically because I teach teenage girls mm -hmm. and sometimes it's hard for me to understand all of the social dynamics that especially are happening in the room because a lot for a lot of them it's the first co-ed experience they've ever had and yeah i'm still working on just getting them comfortable with each other but i think in general i have a younger sister and i know a little bit about just the way girls are with each other and i wonder i mean i wonder what it's like i guess as a teenager or especially as a girl today yeah, so that's a great question. So I am one of four girls. I have three sisters, no brothers. And I think the environment I've grown up in, like I totally feel like I understand girls. I don't want to simplify every girl to being the exact same in your classroom, for example. But girls' social dynamics are just so different from boys' social dynamics, for better or for worse. It's just the way they are, um, especially in high school. And... I think, like, I always went to a co-ed school growing up, which was super important to me, and I think my sisters would agree, because growing up in an all-female household, pretty much, save for my dad, um, made it so that we could see from a young age boys as, like, friends. It wasn't, it didn't feel as though there was this huge divide between boys and girls in the school, which was really important to me, because had I gone to an all-girls school, you know, I feel like I would have been so you know, pigeonholed into understanding girls really well and girl social dynamics. And sometimes, like, boys also can just help, like, diffuse the girl social dynamics. You know, a classroom of 20 kids where 10 of them are girls maybe having issues with each other, but 10 of them are boys who, like, really don't need to know the social dynamics or care, um, for lack of a better way to say it, I think is actually beneficial. But it does make me wonder, like, at your school, for example, putting myself maybe in your in your female students' shoes, the idea of being a female student, yes, being at an all-girls school, but going into the boys' school, mm -hmm. first school, I think is really interesting. Like, I wonder what that's like for them. Do they see it as a co-ed classroom experience, or do they see themselves as, like, guests in the boys' school? I don't know, but... Yeah. Um, and then throw in the other all-girls school across the street and thinking of... challenging dynamic. Thinking about, oh, I'm going into this school, and I'm not really friends with these other girls, and I don't really know how the two girls' schools, Roland Park and Bryn Mawr, see each other, but I, I, from my vantage point, I don't really see a lot of them as friends with each other unless they become friends through the class. Yeah, and every school, co-ed, boys' school, girls' school, has a different kind of ethos and a different environment. So, you know, I assume that girls growing up in two different girls' schools come from different environments, so they're not used to learning the exact same way. You know, they're not used to getting the same 
you know, experience from their teachers and their peers. So throwing them in together maybe is already like a whole other social dynamic. And then you throw boys in who maybe a lot of them haven't even ever gone to school with boys. It's mm-hmm. a challenge. Yeah. I think it's interesting following the way that students, especially from different schools, because at Gilman, you might, after a couple of years, have some type of reputation, or at least you know a little bit about the teacher going into their class. Mm-hmm. For the girls, they've just got to pick up and learn and try to figure out what does this teacher expect from me? How do I do well in this class? And yeah. in those beginning, you know, the first couple of weeks of school, they're just looking at you, trying to read you and trying to figure out, you know, I've never had a teacher at Gilman School. What did they what do they want from me? Yeah, maybe, you know, trying to make a friend with a Gilman student as quick as possible to say, you know, what have you heard about Mr. Scott? What do I need to know about his class? Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that that might exist with some students too. Yeah, I, I like to do a lot in my classroom of just, especially recently, just sit with somebody that you don't know that well. And usually I just assign students with each other and talk about something that doesn't have to do with school for five minutes because I think they need they need that. It can't all be about the class that's or school huge. for a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I should do that with my students more. And the idea not just of like talk about something other than school, but like turn to someone that isn't your best friend. Like if I were to tell students, you know, talk to someone in this class for five minutes, they'd probably immediately go to the person they're closest with and talk about, you know, maybe they're gossiping, maybe they're talking about fantasy football league, all that. But also the value in just talking to someone you don't know, mm-hmm. um, I think is really Are the boys valuable. and the girls pretty close or friends in your classes, or is it divided in a similar way? Um, I would say in terms of where they sit in class, I notice more and more often, I don't assign seats, maybe I should, that the boys will kind of end up sitting on one end and girls sit on the other. But the desks are kind of arranged in a circle, so it doesn't feel as important. You know, it's not like rows and all the boys are in the back and girls are in the front or vice versa. But um, definitely girls and boys are friends with each other at our school for sure, my school for sure. But academically, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the difference is between their relationships socially and academically. Mm -hmm. And you're pretty pro the co-ed experience you went to co-ed schools and you're teaching at a co-ed school you like that i am i am um i can see why there would totally be benefits to an all-boys school or an all-girls school my dad went to a boys school at one point in his life and sees a lot of value in that but again as someone who grew up with all sisters and didn't grow up just like naturally with boys my age around except for school i find i found it to be super valuable to have those connections in school Mm mm-hmm Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, all right, so what's planned for your classes, I guess, after the break? What are you going to get into next? It's a great question. So actually, at my school, we start out with a J term of sorts. So students come back from holiday break, and they spend three weeks in January um, just taking one class, totally different from their semester classes. It doesn't count towards semester one or two. It's its own thing. So I'm helping with... Um, a community service oriented one, which I love, um, on food insecurity. So it's kind of the the name of it is called Hungry for Change. But so we'll be doing a lot of different work in like soup kitchens and learning about food insecurity. And I think it's a great like experiential learning opportunity. Um, But then after that, we get back to semester two and we are going to be talking about reconstruction um, post-Civil War while students are reading the book Passing in English class. Oh, yeah which takes place in kind of Reconstruction era, Great Migration. It's it's a little bit later, like early 20th century, but it's a great book mm-hmm. um, 
and it's a great a, book to talk about racial dynamics because yes uh i mean the whole thing obviously is about passing and the blurred lines of race totally and and it's a great way for students to connect their english and their history so mm-hmm. hopefully we're gonna have a lot of conversations about that mm. do you do much in the extracurricular realm at your school um, I do. So I help teach dance, um, which I love. I was a dancer growing up and in college, so that's really fun. I just teach like one dance class a week to high schoolers who are interested in dance but aren't in our like kind of more intense dance company. So a lot of them are students who are into theater and just want to try out dance. Mm-hmm. Um, as a side thing, some are students with little experience at all. Um, so I do that. I love that. Um, I coached cross country last year help out with the center for public good which is our like community service wing but i'm kind of just like all around um there's some teachers that are like really into you know coaching one sport or they have this one club that is like their child oh i also advised the one love club which i love mm-hmm. and a sustainable fashion club that was just recently started but i kind of like the idea of being able to dip my toes in the water of a bunch of different things rather than having just like one big thing and mm-hmm. that's kind of how i was as a student too i like to be in a little bit of everywhere rather than like I was not a varsity athlete who just had like one sport I was really into. Mm-hmm. I did a little bit of everything, which I enjoy doing now. Okay, so I want I want to hear a little bit about dance and it, you know, I have my sister's wedding coming up in May, so mm-hmm. I need some more dance moves to add to my arsenal. So how'd you get into dance and what's your favorite dance move? So again, <laughs> Growing up with three sisters, it always comes back to my sisters with me, um, as anyone who knows me well could tell you. Um, Like, just constant making up dance routines in the house, dance parties. My oldest sister was always trying to organize us in some sort of musical that she had made up with intricate dance routines. So I loved it. Um, And I always was just interested in anything that involved dance, but I didn't take, like, the ballet classes growing up or all that. And then in fifth grade... My friend who was in dance class brought me to her bring a friend to dance day and I became so obsessed with it and it was like a really fast-paced jazz class Mm -hmm. and so I started doing that and then by like seventh grade I was like eat sleep breathe every type of dance like you could not talk to me without hearing about dance what do you think it was that attracted you so much to dance in that jazz class well the teacher was incredible and she went on to be my teacher for many years but she was just so tough like you're planking for five minutes as an 11-year-old at the start of class. But I loved it. You get, like, addicted to wanting to be good at it because no one's good at it naturally. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was awesome. It was so fast-paced. It was all about just, like, getting the music in you rather than, you know, looking perfect or, like, a lot of different things that are common in ballet-type dance. Eventually I got into that more when I got into all different styles. But, like, that's always where my heart is. So, like, any type of even, like – that I'm not formally dancing now, any type of dance floor, any type of dance experience, like, I love. I think it's something that unites all of us as humans. I think everybody, you know, who goes to a wedding wants to break out onto the dance floor, Mm -hmm. and um, it's definitely something that is somehow in my blood. I love doing that, and my dad even always says, like, God, girls just, like, run around and dance all the time when we were little and now today, but totally true. I love it. So when you say that dancing connects people, what do you mean by that? I think music connects people, and I think that that's, like, a pretty common thing. But the ability to somehow, like, move your body, whether it's in an intricate way or not, um, 
I think is so powerful doing it all together to something. I had so many friends, you know, in high school and college who would be like, just teach me one dance move. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's fun. You teach, I had a bunch of guy friends in college that, you know, if they're ever trying to pick up girls or something, they'd ask me to teach them a dance move. And, you know, you have that one dance move that you have with that one friend. And every time you see them, you'll do it together. And I think it's like a great kind of unifying experience. It's so fun to be able to be a part of something. And I love this when I was like a formal dancer in middle and high school, be a part of a group of people around you all doing something at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful in yeah. a crazy way. Yeah, I never had too much experience dancing, but one thing during COVID that I remember is I went downtown with Jay Brooks, who uh, who was on this podcast. He's one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life. He was in the Marines and now he's in med school at NYU and he's he wrote a book. I think he taught a course here for a semester during COVID and now he's like making his course into a book. He's an amazing guy. But we went downtown one Saturday night during COVID or at the end of COVID, a weird period, and people were outside on the mall in Fells Point just flash mob dancing. It's awesome. And it was so cool. I love that. I love that so much. I think that, you know, some people think they're too cool to dance or like my body's not made for it. I always say everyone has it in them. You just have to kind of surrender the awkwardness at first, you know, like everybody has some sort of rhythm in them. Everybody has the ability to do basic dance moves but you know if you get yourself really stiff and you're afraid what people are going to think of you or you know you're you feel like you're too cool for that flash mob or that whatever like fine but you're missing out because once you kind of like surrender to it all and just want to have a good time um it's just so fun what do you think that is about because i think that's true i think even for myself like if you're at a party or something or you're with a group of people there's something in your mind telling you oh that's Whereas if it was a basketball court or a pickleball court or anything else, I'd be totally, totally comfortable. But dancing is not inherently comfortable and it should be. It's your body. Yeah. I think part of it is that it is your body, right? So that's honestly like that can be really personal for people. But also you can't quantify dance. You can't say, you know, like pickleball or basketball. You can keep trying to get better at it and then eventually you can make the three-point shot or beat xyz person in pickleball maybe like you can quantify getting better at it and you can quantify when someone's good at it dance you really are just letting a lot of people think you're just letting the people around you dictate whether you're good at dancing or not but once you really realize that it's not about a i think it's freeing because you don't have to be good at it Mm -hmm. and it's all just about like if you feel comfortable i think that it honestly it's it makes it scary but then once you kind of just again like surrender it makes it more fun that's interesting because i don't think i've ever i mean you definitely judge people who are dancing a little bit in your own mind but you never judge them in a bad way it's like oh this person's just dancing they're just doing crazy things and even though it's not that great it's still hilarious and awesome totally if anything you want to be like them you're jealous that they don't care what other people think Mm mm-hmm and I was thinking about that a little bit, too, because I went to a senior speech at Bryn Mawr. One of my students gave a senior speech not too long ago about weightlifting. And I think the same experience happens sometimes for everyone when they're in the weight room or in the gym because you're in there and subconsciously or even consciously you're wondering what everyone is thinking about you as you pick up these dumbbells or you bench this or you're doing this exercise. Am I doing the wrong thing? Am I not using enough weight? Do I look stupid in here? That's kind of, 
for sure the high school experience of weightlifting, but I think just generally people think that in their minds when they're in the gym, especially if they're not that experienced. And her message in the speech was, after a certain amount of time, I realized nobody cares what I'm doing in here. They're all focused on themselves. Totally. And I should just do my thing. It's awesome. It makes me feel good. It's fun. And nobody's really watching me. Yeah. And I think you get at a greater human truth there, which like the time I learned this, like totally kind of changed my life and my outlook on life. And it was when I was in high school, college, when I was at that period, like kind of you were saying of students who are just so worried about what other people think. Once you fully realize that like everybody else is just as nervous as you are and just as worried about looking a certain way or acting a certain way, it's freeing because you realize that like I mean, it's like the same thing with all this social media that you see with students and the boy and girl social dynamics. Everyone is way more caught up in themselves than they are with you. And so if you can be, especially that one person, like this is where kind of leadership comes in. If you can be the one person in the room to be vulnerable and just not care what other people think, right? Mm -hmm. Like just break out into dance or whatever, or just, I don't even know. Like for high schoolers, maybe it's just like, posting a picture that you feel happy with even if you're afraid what other people are going to think everyone else is just as worried about what they're posting or whether they're going to dance or not so a i feel like step one is in order to make yourself happy just like you know do the dance move pick up the weights do whatever makes you happy and then b where it becomes like leadership and i know you teach that leadership class is where you can make other people feel comfortable doing that too you can Mm -hmm. encourage other people to do it Mm -hmm. i guess so that's interesting you say that because I don't know if it was during COVID and it was definitely over Zoom. So yeah, it was during COVID. But I think Henry showed um, a video on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen this. It's like at a big park. That, I don't know if it's in America or not, if it, in the United States. But one person is standing up and they're on like the hillside or whatever. And he starts dancing. And then all of a sudden he picks up his friend and the two start dancing. And then all of a sudden there's four. And then all of a sudden it's a huge dance party because one person, you know, spread his energy to everyone else. If you've learned a lot about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point, and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. 
They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over-glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in. Energy is contagious. That's why I think dance is kind of a, a metaphor for life, not to be too cliche, but it's all about just like showing vulnerability, but in a way that makes you happy. Like that student you're saying who likes to lift weights, like, it's something as simple as picking up weights and putting them down, or then eventually picking up heavier ones and putting them down makes you feel that good about yourself, then like who cares what like the person across the room thinks? They're probably more concerned about what weights they're picking up, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, but it took me so long to learn that. I think it's easier said than done to just make sure high schoolers who don't have fully developed prefrontal cortexes in their brain just like to tell everyone to believe that. Mm -hmm. But the more that you experience it in your daily life, the more you realize like there's this idea of like the floating duck um, that my uh, freshman seminar professor told me in college, which totally also changed my life, was the idea that everyone looks like a floating duck at the surface, especially when you're at your points of your most worried. Everyone else looks like a floating duck, like they're doing it so easily. They've got life figured out. They're perfect, whatever. Whether you're seeing the pictures they post or the you know grades they get in school or the sport they play and are really good at. But beneath the surface of the water, they're pedaling and pedaling, trying to keep up. Mm -hmm. And so once you can kind of see other people for like, I recognize that you look like you're, you know, a floating duck and I want to be like you and I want to be as smart as you are, as good at this as you are, you're probably just as worried about what other people think too. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great message and it applies a lot to social media and your grid or your banner on Instagram mm -hmm. where you just look through and this person looks perfect. They're on trips and right? they've got a great body and they've got a great, you know, great captions or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really hard if you're not familiar with that theory or that idea that a lot of people, I remember one person in my high school um I don't know, we were talking about her or something and everyone was like, oh, she looks so, so happy at, you know, Georgetown. It looks like she's having an amazing experience there. Oh, her life is awesome. And then the next semester she transferred or something. It's yeah. like, yeah, it appears that way. But in reality, you don't know the ins and outs of this person's life and what they're doing and going through on a daily basis right. that is not their Instagram feed. Right, right. Everyone's going through something you don't know about. Yeah. And is that is that um, specific to Instagram? I mean, I don't even know if Instagram is the most popular app for high schoolers today. 
I think TikTok more so. I think so. TikTok is, yes. Um, from, is this same phenomenon happening on TikTok, do you think? Oh, yeah. TikTok, I think for the most part, like the way students engage with it, my students, is that instead of looking at pictures that make you look perfect, it's videos that make you look perfect, um, which I don't even know if that's better or worse or just as bad, but um, I definitely see that all the time. And do most teenagers at your school, because I don't really know too much about this, are they making content? Are they creating content and putting it on TikTok? Yes, yeah, so both. So I think there's a lot of like, you know, when I'll bring up something in class, that's like, I saw this on TikTok. Like they consume an insane amount of TikTok content. Um, but also they'll make their own videos and, you know, like I'll say to a student, they'll say like, well, I'm, I'm public on TikTok and I have like all these followers, but like I'm afraid of what I post because other people are going to see. I'm like, well, so then why don't you at least like make your profile private? They're like, well, I want to be famous. Mm-hmm. So TikTok is this weird thing where Instagram was all about who you followed and who followed you. TikTok is you're putting yourself out for the whole world. You're seeing the whole world. Like when I had Instagram in high school, it was totally like consuming. I'm not saying that, you know, I grew up like, you know, with a a much like more wholesome social media experience. I don't even know. But at least like I was looking at pictures of people I knew. So I, I knew a little bit more of what would be going on behind the scenes. I would maybe like know someone better enough to know that like they're posting that picture. They're actually dealing with this or something. Whereas on TikTok, you really, you don't get anyone's full story. You just get the videos. And it's it's open up to the entire world. It's almost like a discover page, right? Because when yes. you follow, you don't really follow people on TikTok. You just open up to, yeah, right? Yeah. No? no, no, you're right. It's just funny. Like now this is, you know, an episode of us trying to understand what TikTok is because I don't even understand fully. But yeah, I think it's like when you go on, you see all the people, the explore page or discover page or whatever and then you can also click on like a page of the people you follow your friends or your favorite influencers and a lot of people today aspire to become influencers because it looks awesome a lot you you can make a good amount of money right you can make an insane amount of money i think and based on your following and how many people watch you and how long they view you for yeah yeah and advertisements all that stuff yes yes like advertisements engagement actually the girl charlie d'amelio who's like the most famous original tiktok person now is a reality show lives in la she went to like a prep school 15 minutes from where i teach and she was just like a kid that some of the kids at my school knew who danced a lot so she was like a good dancer and then suddenly she blew up on this platform now she has a reality show lives in la makes millions so (laughs) like if that's not telling my students that they can't do it too then i don't know what is yeah and they just need to have good dance moves and they're in your dance class yeah, of course. So that's that's why I teach dances. The, so they the dreams can alive. Get good at TikTok. Yeah, for sure. All right, Annie. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything else that we didn't get to today on the episode that you think is important for high schoolers, just anyone to to hear you talk about? No, I think the one big thing I would just reiterate for for the young people listening that you and I interact with on a daily basis, or maybe just for humans in general, is that. Everybody looks like they've got it all figured out and no one actually does. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's something that I think I need to remind my students of more. Hopefully then I can save them a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think that's true in high school. I think it's true in life, but in college too. Like at the next level you go to, you know, you oh, work really, yeah. really hard in high school. You go to a great college and then you get there. And I think that's why some schools uh, for college, you have to really 
know what you're getting into when you go to the next level because you can shoot for the moon and go to the best places, but those places are not for everyone. You know, like I knew so many people at Harvard that got there and they had the floating duck idea. They looked great on paper, but um, like in reality, they were struggling. They'd leave and they'd, you know, have to go, you know, somewhere else for a little bit, take a break because a lot of these places are so, so competitive and they're almost toxic for people when they get there. Yeah, and that whole idea is addicting. I would be lying if I said that I had never tried to be the floating duck. You know, I try to look like I have it all together and I totally don't. And I think I've gotten better at just being more vulnerable vulnerable with that. But yeah, college has a whole other dimension because then you've got work and you've got another work as the next shiny trophy people are trying to get. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's a great message. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Jake. And thank you for the Path to Follow merch. I love it. Maybe I'll wear it over my my collared shirt to school next week, bring my book with me, <laughs> um, get my students to listen to this episode. See, maybe they'll listen to it even more than they listen to me in class. But yeah, who they'll knows? love it. Awesome. Well, enjoy the book. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.